the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Music provided by the 48th Islanders of Canada. Today's guest, Chief Warrant Officer Scott Patterson, CD, former Regimental Sergeant Major of the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada and of 32 Service Battalion. When my father was in in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, regiments in Toronto could have three to 400 soldiers, and they had probably 40% of veterans on parade. Welcome to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Lacroix. Before I get into today's episode, I want to get into some updates of the previous guests on the podcast. As time goes on, obviously people progress, people change in different ways, they take on new roles and new responsibilities, and it's just interesting to look back at some of the guests and see where they've gone and what they're up to now. The first person I'd like to update is Lieutenant Colonel Mike Vernon. When I interviewed him in September of 2013 on episode one, he had released from the Canadian Forces after his tour in Sierra Leone, and now he has returned to the Canadian Forces, and it looks like he's in the succession plan for command of 41 Canadian Brigade Group. When that succession does take place, he would be relieving Colonel John Conrad, who has also been a guest on the show. I'm going to be jumping ahead to Episode 4, and Lieutenant General Andrew Leslie has decided to run for political office in the riding of Orleans, which is near Ottawa. The guest from Episode 6 was Captain Shannon Terrell, and in August of 2014, she was married to her husband, John. Episode 11 was with Lieutenant Colonel Clifford Baker, who served with the Royal Canadian Artillery, and he passed away shortly after his episode. Episode 12 was with Master Corporal Jody Middick, who is now a counselor for the City of Ottawa. Jody is planning to release his book, Unflinching, The Making of a Canadian Sniper, in September of 2015, September 8th to be exact. You can order his hardcover book for $20 on Amazon, and hopefully you'll use my Amazon link to order that book, or you can order the Kindle edition for $15.99. What I'll do on the webpage, I'll publish a quick link to that book on the Amazon site, and then hopefully you can buy the book if you want to. Episode 14 was with Major Bruce Mayer, who is now a Lieutenant Colonel with the Lincoln and Welland Regiment, and he is the commanding officer. He's been the commanding officer for just a little over a year now. Episode 15 was with W2 Sam McGee, who passed away about a year ago. Episode 16 was with Chief Warrant Officer Grant Lawson, who became my successor in the position of Brigade Sergeant Major of 32 Canadian Brigade Group. Episode 24 was with me, and the update there is that I have handed over the appointment of Brigade Sergeant Major to Chief Warrant Officer Grant Lawson, and I am a captain with the Gray and Simcoe Foresters. Sticking with 41 Canadian Brigade Group, we have episode 32 with Chief Warrant Officer Emmett Kelly, and Emmett will be stepping down as the Brigade Sergeant Major of 41 Canadian Brigade Group in October of 2015. In episode 36, General Lewis McKenzie told us about the Never Forgotten National Memorial. That project is still continuing, and for some reason it's received some harsh criticism by people about putting a monument there in Cape Breton. Seems like a good project, seems like a worthwhile cause, but some people are getting upset about it. I expect the project will continue to its logical conclusion. In episode 39, Captain Slade Lurch told us that he was having problems getting promoted. Well, I'm pleased to announce that he is substantively a major in Canada's armed forces, in 
the Canadian Army and in the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. So he has achieved his goal and hopefully he has more to look forward to in his future. The timing of episode 43 was on Thursday, July 23rd of 2015, which was the exact date that Colonel Dwayne Hobbs from episode 43 stepped down as the commander of 32 Canadian Brigade Group. So that was kind of deliberate on my part that I would have his episode done at the exact same time as his change of command event in Toronto. It was a great event at Fort York National Historic Site, and it was great to reunite with a bunch of friends. On a quick personal note, I've had an opportunity to travel to the Manicouagan Crater in northern Quebec and paddle my kayak on the Manicouagan Reservoir. A friend of mine, Victor, he joined me out there, and we went out for seven days on the reservoir, doing some camping, some paddling in the complete wilderness. We didn't see anybody during our entire seven days. It's quite spectacular. The guest of today's episode is Chief Warrant Officer Scott Patterson, who's been a friend of mine for quite a number of years. The place where we typically encounter each other is at parades and at dinners and other social events, military social events. And he was the chairman of the dinner that marked my departure from the appointment of Brigade Sergeant Major at 32 Canadian Brigade Group. I was very fortunate to have him as the chairman, as the MC, because he knows how to run a dinner and he knows how to make an event special. I have a couple of items from him in my office right now that I'm looking at. One is a display of the Senior Appointment Chief Warrant Officer cap badge, rank insignia, and the 32 Canadian Brigade Group badge. And he has also given me a cigarette pack from World War I, which is very rare, and it's a neat little collector's item. He also had an opportunity to take the mess menu program from the Toronto Garrison Sergeants and Warrant Officers Dinner that was held in April of 2013 and my departure dinner and have those framed up with all the signatures on the menu or on the program. And those were very touching mementos and gifts. One of the talents of Chief Warrant Officer Scott Patterson is his ability to tell the truth whether or not you want to hear it. Some people can't get around that. Some people don't really appreciate his version of the truth. But nevertheless, it's something that's enjoyable to listen to, something enjoyable to watch. I've always appreciated his advice. I've always appreciated his counsel. And I've always been able to have time to listen to his stories and to share a good laugh. Here's my interview with Chief Warrant Officer Scott Patterson. Chief Warrant Officer Patterson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's both an honor and a privilege to join the other group that have already been on the podcast, and I'm sure will continue as you increase your numbers. Now, Scott, I don't exactly remember when you and I first met, but I know we started to get to know each other at your dining out as the RSM of the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada. Absolutely. The event was probably in 2008. However, like everyone in the reserve, probably from 1997, 1998, we would see each other for condensed amounts of time in the summer. That's right. So I was aware of who you were. You were the recruiting guy at one point, your other positions at camp, you were the sergeant major at camp. And I do remember that after my retirement and leaving the Queen's Zone to go to headquarters, we struck up a stronger relationship when you were appointed that pre-brigade sergeant major position. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> the assistant to the assistant chief of staff. Yeah, that was quite a title. But anyhow, <laughs> right. it was an interesting time. Exactly. And then you did your tour, and I definitely stayed in contact with you during that phase. That's right. Then you got a second life, so you got to go to the service battalion as well. I did, and as many people will know locally, it was a tremendous honor because my father had commanded that exact unit in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and so to have the lineage in one way being a foreigner, but having that direct family connection 
made my transition tremendously easy. Right. And I must say, being the RSM of a integral infantry unit where you can move anyone anywhere compared to a unit that has more facets than the diamond I've never bought anyone <laughs> is very difficult to deal with. People would phone me and say, we want to move this master corporal over here. And I would agree. And 10 minutes later, they'd say, oh, now we can't order food. Why'd you do that? Like, <laughs> okay, stop calling me and asking me for my permission. Yeah, sounds good. Well, I sent you the questions in advance. So you did, yes. Thank you. Are you all set to go? I am, 100%. What I would like to know is why you chose to join the Canadian Armed Forces. I'm the son of a veteran, and I grew up in an era where every person, for the most part that I met, the janitor at the school, the principal at the school, the whole fabric of Canadian society would have events because all these veterans of the Second World War and the First World War were still active men. So a small school would have a Remembrance Day service where every child from kindergarten to grade six is sitting there hearing from real veterans, which is great because it was that memory project done without sort of uh, government backing. It was just done because it was the right thing to do. Right. And I'd been a cadet. And again, it was one of those transitions from cadets to the militia that made sense to not only myself, but the enjoyment and people I knew. Because I I joined the militia with probably seven people I knew, which is kind of rare by today's standards. Yeah, I joined with six other friends, but I'm very proud to carry on that tradition now to do presentations at schools on Remembrance Day and do that public speaking event as well. Yeah, I just wish that because Remembrance Day is so vital, I have done it at schools the day and a half before just so I could attend my regimental event. Right. And because there were sometimes I was almost cheating to get there on time to do both. <laughs> and I felt sorry for the children. I always, I always bought a book for their library and put it in their library that was age sensitive and had them be able to look at it in years to come. Yeah, I enjoy the debate about making Remembrance Day a national holiday. And I appreciate and value what the teachers and educators do to keep Remembrance Day front and center in our schools. And I think that there would be a lot of value lost if they suddenly turned around and made Remembrance Day a national holiday. And then all the students didn't have the benefit of attending those mass gatherings and assembly halls and being able to see uh, veterans speak to them and have the presentations that they put on themselves as well. Yeah. Again, I've got to agree with you 100% because making it a national holiday, it will lose the focus and people will go to Walmart. People will go to some other location. Right. And to me, whether there's only 20 people standing in front of my regimental monument, I know that I make it 21 and my friend makes it 22 and next year it could be 45. Right. Absolutely. And those are the things that once people see it in the public eye and the young children in a school I still consider in the public eye is their first exposure to the importance of what freedom is, because they can understand freedom. They can understand the sort of horrific portions, but they can understand that they live and go to bed safely every night. And those are the sort of things that they can take away at a very young age. So going back to the initial question, you said you joined the Canadian Forces. You started in the cadets. Which cadet corps was that? I was in the Governor General's Horse Guards. And that was based on my father, who wasn't willing to have me compromise my education by going all the way downtown. Right. So this was a one-bus ride as opposed to the three-bus ride. (laughs) And because he knew, not to be putting me down, that I'm not a tremendous student for doing homework. Right. So if I took two extra hours, an hour more there and an hour more back, I would have never filled in a page. (laughs) 
So he knew that and understood the importance of education, but he also understood the importance of having fun, camaraderie. And again, I'm from a family of four boys and myself, and he didn't force it on anyone. He just made sure if you wanted to enjoy it, you want to learn how to play tennis, you wanted to learn how to golf, you wanted to learn how to water ski, he made it available, but you had to show a genuine interest before he allowed you to pursue it. And I definitely enjoyed cadets and pursued it to its highest level. I ended up going on national training and international exchanges, Excellent. which again, allowed me the reasons why I now, when I talk to cadets, which I do separate from the schools, I say, today may not be the best day of your time, but in four years, you could be flying a glider. You could be visiting people around Canada. You could be in Banff, Alberta, climbing a mountain. Right. Because those opportunities, my parents could never afford, even if they had one child, and we had a family of five and then two parents. So, um, Well, I think it's a recurring theme on the show is the value of the cadet program, and it's no cost to parents. Uniforms are provided for free. All activities are provided for free. Even my young son has decided to join the Barry Air Cadet. And he's enjoying it tremendously and gives them a sense of their own worth. And I mean, he learned to tie a tie on his own. He ties his own tie. I never taught him one single time. And that was his own drive and initiative. He knew he had to get it done. So he got it done. I mean, there are people that don't really see the value in the cadet program, but I see it every day here at home. Right. And again, I think the greatest thing about cadets is it's cadets helping cadets, not parents helping cadets, which quite often happens in some other sort of sporting events or other arenas of youth. Right. So that when I progressed from being a trooper in the, in the horse guards to being a master corporal, I actually had to take attendance and I had to have a book and I had to know who was on time and who wasn't on time and who I phoned on the week before. And what I loved about that is throughout your life, those are the very basic, simple things. And now you do it on a BlackBerry or you do it on a computer <laughs> screen. But you still have to know to take the time at the right time to make sure everybody's there. Yeah. Because the failure of that fundamental is when, and everyone in the Army's done this, we've left the person behind at a rest stop. Somebody's left their kit behind because nobody took that five minutes to say, I'm going to talk to my 10 people and then I'm going to talk to my 10 people. And eventually someone tells me we've talked to all 30 people and I tell the guy we've talked to all 90 people. Right, exactly. And, and again, we have to turn the bus around after four and a half hours because some guy <laughs> put his kit by a tree and when he got on the thing, he told his buddy to pick it up and his buddy said, I don't like you and didn't. <laughs> right. Yeah, and again, the fundamentals are tremendous in cadets because they're at your level and they're not complicated, but there are some you can grow with your whole life. So, Scott, tell me, what year did you join the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada? I joined the militia in 19... 19- 78, which makes me going between 37 and 38 years of being in the reserve. And unfortunately, that was a fairly low point. The uh, unification was about five to six years old. Everyone saw the Canadian Army as a mirror image of sort of post-Vietnam. And from a reserve point of view, when my father was in in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s, regiments in Toronto could have three to 400 soldiers. Right, absolutely. And they had probably 40% of veterans on parade. And now, when I got in, you'd be lucky to break 100, and 99.9% would have had no experience outside of the militia as a group, whether it was a colonel or a private soldier. And the one thing I must say, which is tremendous, is now, since the uh, 1990s, when we go on parade, we have those medals. We have those veterans. We have their true experience. We have people that have gone to smaller deployments and disasters and everything, and all of them bring back something that makes that unit, whether it's for a year or six months while they're there, so much stronger and so much more professional. And the one thing I love is most veterans you meet, for the most part, are that silent, quiet professional. Right. 
you have to ask them about how could we do this better as opposed to the guy running up to you and saying, oh, that's a, it's a dumb idea, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and again, I, I truly, and again, when I went to the services high-end, there were people there that did every kind of job. And in the Queen's Zone, everyone was either in a specialized unit within a subunit or they were in an infantry battalion where their day was the same. Every 10 guys had the same experience every day where these people in the service battalion could have had driving fuel truck one day and escorting a general the next day. And the whole dynamics and stress is there, right. but it's a totally different world. Absolutely. And again, it is amazing. If you line up the brigade or the army now, there's medals on parade where before, in the 1990s almost, they were all in the audience. Right. And I think that's tremendous. Or the occasional UN or Cyprus medal or something like that. Right. But again, not enough to notice them as you have gone on inspecting parties. Right. When you see people with three tours, five tours, mm -hmm. multiples, where, like you said, when I joined, you could have had one guy went to Golan Heights, one guy went to Cyprus, where now, especially at the end of the 1990s into 2000 and sort of probably five, seven battalions in the regular army were probably 60% veteran. And the reserve was probably equal in their numbers because a lot of them stay and pass on, which is, again, an invaluable and impossible thing for us to generate on a piece of paper or a laptop or a lesson plan. Yeah, absolutely. That 10 minutes with that one guy saying this is the best way to take care of this truck so that you can launch faster is amazing. Yeah, certainly. Now, you said 1978 is when you joined. So I was in Cubs, but what was the world like when you joined? Again, the world was uh, a very different place. The love of the Canadian forces, which we now have, had somewhat diminished. I wouldn't say it dwindled, but people hadn't been in Korea. People hadn't been fighting. And in some people's mind, that's why we have an army. And the other point was the mirroring of us and the American forces post-Vietnam was not a very positive draw at the time. People had wrongfully, in my opinion, sensationalized events in Vietnam as if they were everyday occurrences. And although they were terrible and horrific, they were not an everyday occurrence with every person who ever put a uniform on. Right. What were you like when you joined? Well, again, I had come from the cadets. And if one thing cadets can do, and everyone who's ever been in the militia can see, is their kit, their drill, and their deportment outshines the world. Right. <laughs> so on your first day, you can see who's been a cadet because he shows up, he's got his own combat, he's got his own pair of boots that are broken in. Wait, you what know. do you mean his own combat? Oh, people would have bought it as a cadet from any store nearby oh, in okay. Toronto. Right. So they would have purchased it because they didn't want to be in the field because unfortunately the option A was wear a heavy woolen coverall that was designed for a man six foot two. <laughs> And you wade through a swamp and you've got nine layers of rolled up cuff on your boot. Right. And it's like, hey, maybe this isn't the smartest thing to do. Well, so, there was uh, a period of time in Canada's Army Reserve where Army Reservists were not entitled to combat, to the combat uniform. And you had to go out to a surplus store and find your own combat uniform to wear to go to deploy to the field. Right. When I joined in 1978, that had only changed and we were entitled to one uniform, one pair of boots. One combat coat, which, again, was cotton. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> and if you were in a shelter with a heater, you might stay warm. Right. And again, so I, I joined, but because I had already purchased a few sets of uniforms and a, another pair of boots and, and different items, I could actually go away with a rucksack and put items that were actually army in the rucksack as opposed to a pair of jeans and running shoes. and a, Right. Well, at the time when I grew up, everybody had those lumberjack jackets. As this, that was the <laughs> coolest thing in the world. So I never owned one. My father just didn't think it was right. So I will give myself an out on that one. Well, maybe he had some connections in the supply world to help you. 
Well, again, he was a self-made sort of man, and he just said, save your money. We're going to go to Hercules or save more. And right. he was just there to make sure I didn't get duped by buying a pair of pants three sizes too big or the one with the bum ripped out. Or yep. So <laughs> other than that, it was my money. Because, again, he had four other children and a wife to deal with. And, again, I wanted to spend my money on this. My older brother wanted to spend money on hockey. My younger brother wanted to spend money on football. So we all had that sort of minimal income job, delivering newspapers or whatever. And you just spent that, and that was your goal for the year or the day or whatever. Now, you brought up your brothers, but your brother Brian also joined the Canadian Forces, didn't he? He did. He was a cadet for a short while and then became a member of the Queen's York Rangers and had one of the greatest short careers, <laughs> if you can imagine this. He was sent to Montreal. They believed because he was born in Montreal that he was bilingual and no one tested him. <laughs> and he actually drove the royal family and lived on HMS Britannia and Holy has <laughs> a signed photograph from the entire crew to Brian Patterson. Best of luck. He has a beer stein that has their crest on it that again has his name on it. And of his nine weeks or whatever in Montreal, he spent, I believe, between two and two and a half weeks living on the Britannia and being wow. treated fantastic. And no <laughs> one ever asked him to speak French because he can't. <laughs> and so the RCMP officer in the front seat with him had his normal side on. My brother had a weapon, but it was sort of in a holster on the floor. And then whoever the dignitary was, was in the back with their ADCs or that sort of stuff. I believe the highest person he drove was one of the peripherals. Right. Like he never drove the queen, but he actually was on the ship when she went to bed. He went to bed. The difference being he drank a lot more than she did. So. <laughs> well, if this was Brian Patterson's episode... I believe right. that he would say that was his most memorable experience in the Canadian Armed Forces. But what is your most memorable experience or your greatest achievement? I would say there are two. The first one came quite early. I became a parachutist in 1982, so I'd only been in about four years. And in 1983, I earned my full maroon beret, my right to wear white parachute wings, to wear a parachute smock. And that was unheard of. There were no reservists until we actually did that course, right. and it was a phenomenal event. It was hard on your body, hard on your mind, because back in those days, people liked to dump on you for no reason. <laughs> I mean, that was the way of the Canadian Army. Some guy would make you relace your boots, and you know they were perfect, but he had the control, and he would look at you and say, right, take that off and redo it. So that was the only oddity there. And then the best sport of achievement as a collective is I was lucky in 1998 to be the sergeant major of a sovereignty exercise in Joe Haven, which is in the Arctic Circle. Right. And the strangest thing is when you template a C6 machine gun, there is no backstop. It's basically, eventually the bullet will fall to the ground. <laughs> And they send out notices through this version of a sort of wireless version of a party line okay, and tell right. everyone from this bay to this mountaintop on Thursday, don't run across it. Right. But there's no confirmation that anyone hears it. Yes. We set up with the full sustained fire kit and everything, and we had ammunition galore because it was a national level event. And I just remember, as the sergeant major thinking, how am I going to deal with if something gets hurt? We are in the Arctic Circle. The hospital was probably 30, 40 kilometers away, and we have one ATV, and you probably die by the vibration of it getting you <laughs> to the hospital. So we'd have to rely on some boat to come in and get them, and then it would have to go so slow, we really needed it. But that was the most challenging, because we went up with a company plus 
headquarters. So we had close to 100, if not just over 100. And we came from all across Ontario. It was an Ontario-driven event. And myself was selected as the chief warrant officer for it. And again, that was probably the... When you come back and say, of all my summer camps, of all my training that I've gone away and done, that would be the primo of the event. Well, two things I keyed in there, because once I had to do the same thing in Africa with the machine gun range, and it was the Soviet DSHKM 12.7 millimeter, essentially a 50 caliber, and we had to rely on the local to communicate the fact that we were firing a range and trust them to make sure nobody was in the template, and there was no verification, like you said. And then the other thing I keyed into was the fact that I just came back from the Arctic. Now, did you go to the Arctic in the winter or in the summer? We did our initial recce in probably March, which was not a smart thing (laughs) because we're there and all our decisions are made where the world's a sheet of ice. Right. And then when we got there in late July, because then people were to go from there to summer camp in mid-August, the entire landscape has changed. Yes, absolutely. And we should have had a better plan when we got there because we listened to one of their elders, which was a great gentleman, and he convinced us to go 40 kilometers outside on this huge bay. But when you do the actual man walking, it's about probably 60 kilometers because you've got to go inland so far to get a path that a donkey could fall over on. (laughs) And again, it was the inexperience of us and going it. We should have gone almost the year before, if you know what I mean. So we saw the same terrain, the same environment, and we only had that one ATV, which literally had to put enough fuel on it just to get itself back, to get fuel, to put itself back on, to come out and see us, right? Yeah, you spend most of your fuel hauling fuel. Without question. And and there's no space for any equipment. So you brought it up to move equipment, and you can't move equipment because you've got this. uh, And again, we, we have no concept of waves, so... When we tried to move things by the Zodiacs, they're just getting swamped because we have too much equipment and we're not smart enough to know how to balance it in the craft. Someone came up with a brilliant idea that to stop it from flipping over to fill the entire front with boxes of ammunition. Oh, great. And it went about 30 feet and dug under like a submarine. Right. And then people had to say, who came up with that idea? And naturally that guy has skulked away (laughs) and not to be seen for two days. So then we have to recover this, which wasn't in deep water, but we still had to recover it all. Right. Because it is a contaminant and we're mm-hmm. Canadians. And it was just like, thanks for your help, buddy. Maybe next week, stay out of this conversation. <laughs> so, and again, those are things that you wouldn't know until you have someone who goes up like yourself. Like you went to Africa and you could inform the person of potential situations or common events or things like that, where for some reason people think it, you can isolate everyone and just start new every year and a half. Because I think it goes across Canada. So there's sort of like Quebec gets a chance, Ontario gets a chance, right. West gets a chance, Quebec gets a chance. So by the time that we went to the second time, nobody wanted to hear our story because they had picked a new team and they were more than confident that they could do it right. without our assistance. Yeah, I believe it's called Opnanook right now. And it is gearing up for another iteration as we speak. They're looking for troops to head out to the Arctic for this coming summer. Yeah, and again, it's fantastic, but we needed to be closer to the community. And the downside was that the community will always be closer to you. So you're constantly, I wouldn't say entertaining them because I wouldn't ever want to send them away. But you're constantly dealing with that where we only dealt with it three or four times when we had this bay 40-some kilometers away. Right. Because they had to make an effort. Yes, that's right. So it's that fine line. But again, if you needed medical help, it's better to be three kilometers away than the sort of 60-mile trek, which we did. And again, naturally, there's no control of weather. And wind, because they haven't had a tree for multiple kilometers, whips across. Like when it moves, you are literally holding your tent in the middle of the night because (laughs) there is no tree line. Yes, absolutely. And you could build that little wall, but that'll stop your fire from going out. 
Because if you built a wall, you'd just be crushed by it. Yeah. But again, I would say that was my, my best time and my most challenging time. Which, again, I'm sure most people, your best time is one of the most challenging times you ever have in your career. That's right. So moving on, who is the greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered? And I know the Queen's Own Rifles of Canada is full of influences and memorable characters. So you must have more than one. I, I do. I would say, in fairness to everyone, the most influential and positive was my father. Right. Because he wanted me to grow, but he also wanted me to be safe. And those sort of things were excellent. I did tremendous amount of things in the cadets and in the militia. He knew to encourage me to go on my jump course. That that wasn't like the guy told me, like, every year we're going to get 10 spots. He knew those 10 spots aren't coming back. The window closes and it moves on. Right. And again, just that his whole approach to soldiering had started as a basic soldier in the British Army. So even though he retired as a lieutenant colonel, he had the bearing of being, and without putting down officers, the bearing of being a soldier as opposed to being an officer. Yeah, thanks for not putting down officers. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm sure they do as well. (laughs) And then the next group would be the people that I joined with. Uh, A guy named Dave Keenan, a guy named Sean Kelly, a guy named Phil Tancordner were all tremendous characters. Right. And the greatest thing about stress relief, or or not really even stress, just boredom, is someone taking that time to make it funny, to make it ridiculous, to make it absurd. And I personally am not bad at that either, but it made the thing enjoyable because, again, you're sitting, it's raining, you're wet, you're going to be wet for the next six hours, no one cares, and someone makes some sock puppet up for no reason except to board. He's bored, you're bored, right? and we've got this Punch and Judy show going off, and people are actually punching each other, right? <laughs> so, yeah, and, and again, I, I would say definitely there's a, you know, like every regiment, there's a lot of people with great character, and that shines in those situations. Right. Again, I guess the uniqueness of the greatest influence is sometimes based on the situation. So one of my best influences about living up to being a jumper and everything was peer pressured by people that had jumped already, people that were on the course with me, people that were going to be my friends for a long time. And they would have had a, a more central port of my life than, say, eight years from now when we're all in different companies or they've gone on to be out of the regiment and stuff. Right. So I would think for the long haul, it would be my father, Dave Keenan, who was a cadet with me right from the early 1970s until the 1980s when he passed away. And then I was very fortunate to strike up a tremendous relationship with a lot of people. And one of the best would be my friend Phil Tenkortner. Right. So we've reached the last question, and I don't know if you've already answered it in your memorable experience question, but what was the greatest challenge you've had to overcome? The greatest challenge I had to overcome? I would have to revert to the situation in which that was the potential of real harm and real problems. And other than that, most of my career, I have been within a field phone away from getting help or an ambulance or putting out a fire. So I think that would have been the greatest challenge I had was to honestly embrace and take the fact that those hundred plus soldiers are the responsibility of me. And that at night, I have to make sure that fires aren't out. People don't have lanterns going off in the middle of the night because they're cold. Right. Little things to make sure that we were as safe and as well-trained as we could. And the other point was you can't get training from people like the Rangers by any other way than being there. And they were incredible because they taught us how to live on the land 
and there's small things like they can make that little wall in probably three to four minutes and we would take 25 because we didn't know what to look for in a stone we didn't really know what to look for right in level and yet they and they would make it which i was amazed at they would make it as a nest so as the wind changed they would just jump across it <laughs> where we would make this one straight line and then make another straight line and make another straight line so eventually we boxed in a circle where they made a nest the first go and sat in one part and the minute that the wind changed they just stepped over with their food their their whatever they had cooking and they were quite happy again right but we never got that skill level and, and again that would take years i think honestly so but, you're uh, talking about your arctic experience my arctic experience from the previous yes. yeah yeah that would have been the most challenging and something i probably take the greatest pride in absolutely uh, well, we've come to the end of the four questions. What's next for you or what's coming up? Well, I'm uh, currently at the Battle School, which is our training facility for all of Toronto 32 Brigade. And I am the chief instructor ensuring that as the Army transitions, we stay with the positive, basically silent professional because a lot of the bad items of the 70s are starting to creep in at not only the lower levels, but a little bit too much of entitlement at different levels because people aren't as comfortable in their job. So they'd rather yell at you five times getting a rifle than just realizing they don't have the piece of paper there to know which rifle the guy gets and stop yelling at the guy. It's the guy in the arsenal's responsibility to be ready. Right. And I witnessed a few incidents of that, and luckily with my quiet and shy personality, <laughs> I ensured that they were corrected right then and there. Right. And hopefully in the near future, I will be a captain, which is the end goal at the moment. It's all based on SIP and positions available and where I get positioned within the brigade. Right. So I am on the track to become a captain, and it may happen in the near future or into 2016. Right. Well, I'll be there waiting for you and welcoming you to the club. (laughs) And I look greatly forward to it because I think I will be a unique addition (laughs) in many ways. Yes, absolutely. Well, Scott, I'm going to give you an opportunity to summarize your episode. So, again, the greatest thing that's happened in my 37 years is the professionalism, the amount of people that have full operational tours, and the fact that the militia is probably between 80 and 90% more professional because it has that depth, it has that strength, and it's smart enough not to turn it away. And at one point, I was fearful that some of those people may come back, realize they've done real work, and may not see a Wednesday night, a Tuesday night, a Thursday night as worthwhile. And the strongest and probably the best have always stayed, and people that have moved on to different careers have made as great an effort as they can. So again, I think the Army I joined in 1978, and I'm including the regular force and the Army of 2015, the 2015 Army is the best army that we have probably had post-war since the end of the Second World War. Right. Well, I'm always amazed by the talent of all the members of Canada's Army Reserve. Just amazing skills, amazing people, dedicated, loyal, and very professional, like you said. Well, Scott, I want to thank you very much for being a guest on my show, and hopefully I can look forward to welcoming you to the officer's mess at one point in the near future. And I, one, want to thank you very much because this has been a tremendous honor to me personally to be able to talk about people like my father, people that I joined the militia with, activities I've been in, and also I do look forward to sharing that drink with you, (laughs) to having that, again, that's a very pivotal point in my career that I have looked forward to knowing eventually that was a goal that I could set and that I could achieve. So again, I really do look forward to the time we are going to spend together when I become an officer. Excellent. So again, thank you very much. You bet. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. 
I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at mikelacroixcmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. The next time you're considering buying something from Amazon.ca, please visit the Canadian Military History Podcast website and click on my Amazon link. A small portion of your purchase goes directly towards the support and maintenance of the podcast. However, your great price from Amazon doesn't change. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. NTAG music is provided by the Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry. Views and opinions are those of the guests of the Canadian Military History Podcast and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Mike Lacroix Productions, the Government of Canada, or the Department of National Defence. This is a Mike Lacroix Production.